So the last couple of weeks, we've been in a short journey on uh, traveling to Basilea, picking up this holiday club theme, and which, of course, is kingdom. And we saw that this theme began with Jesus literally walking on a beach, having encountered the Father's love and affirmation, speaking to his deepest self, you're my son, I love you, I'm so pleased with you. And notice that the Father's pleasure came before he did anything for God. He receives that and then begins to say, the kingdom of heaven is now, it's here, it's, it's everywhere, it's happening, follow me. Notice the kingdom's here, follow me. And he makes that promise, I will make you fishers of men. And there are many, many, many pictures, parables we could have followed with Jesus. Last week we then looked at the parable of the yeast, its influence, its impact. And this week we're going to pick up a few more. So we're going to Luke chapter 14, which <coughs> strangely enough is just before Luke chapter 15, which is another whole lot of amazing parables. The parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal father um, who, uh, who looks after two lost sons. And... Uh, yeah, but we're not going to go there. We're going to go to Luke chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 23. And I'm just picking up, we're nearly at the end of one of the parables, which is the parable of the invitation to the banquet. And a whole lot of people, you could call it not just the parable of the banquet or the parable of the invitation to the banquet, but the parable of feeble excuses. Because people have come up with pathetic excuses not to accept the king's invitation. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and make it unthinkable, compel them to come in. They wouldn't want to stay away so that my house will be full. Notice the heart of the master. I want my house full Yet I tell you, not one of those who were invited and who gave the feeble excuses will get a taste of my banquet. Why? Because they're not there. They've missed out. Verse 25. So large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Notice how different things are now, halfway through the story. Jesus walks alone on the beach and comes to Peter and, uh, <clears throat> and, and Andrew, his brother, and says, follow me. And then there's just a few of them walking, and then he says to James and John, sons of Zebedee, follow me. And that first call to follow and learn how to fish for people, he now says, now we read, suddenly Jesus hasn't been calling people, as, he's calling everyone, but now he's got this massive fellowship. It's like seeming success. And he turns to the crowds and he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me 
cannot be my disciple. The first picture is this invitation. Next picture. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it are going to ridicule you saying this person began to build but wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? And if he's not able, he will send the delegation while the other's still a long way off and ask for what are the terms of peace? In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good. Next image. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's just thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So Jesus is the master of metaphor, of story, of parable. And all these different images, you know, whether it's fishing for men, whether it's yeast, whether it is uh, a parable, whether it's salt, whether it's building a tower, whether it is an invading king, are meant to make us think. And then after thinking... Make a decision and act. Like you're not just meant to think. You're meant to make a decision and act. You see, I've often said the parables are both a window and a mirror. The window gives us this new insight. We get this vision to see something that before, if the, you know, if the room was just closed and there was a wall and there wasn't a window, you couldn't see. So the window is there to give you insight to something beyond the room, beyond yourself. We see more. But not only is it a window, it's also a mirror. There's never a story that Jesus tells that you're not in the story. You're, you're always in there somewhere. And you've got to work out, who am I in the story and what am I going to do? Like The story itself creates the crisis of decision. He's very good at it. And so Jesus takes these seemingly innocent stories and he's making radical demands. And then in our reading, he actually articulates it. If you don't take up your cross, you can't be my disciple. Just in case you're missing and thinking the story, mm, what's this about? He, he like lays it out there. It's still a metaphor, an image, a cross. But you, people in those days, the cross wasn't just a picture. It was a brutal execution instrument. It brought up many, many different thoughts, and none of them were attractive. So a couple of Sundays ago, we looked at this announcement Jesus makes just after his baptism. It's time for change. The time is now. God's kingdom is here. Follow me. And we noted that over the last few hundred years, Western society has attempted an experiment in which they want the kingdom but not the king. They want all the benefits 
of dignity, justice, human value, compassion, mercy, etc., that Jesus came to bring. So they want his kingdom, but they don't want him as king. They want the kingdom, but not the king. And very simply, it can't be done. Jesus insists that the kingdom has a king. The kingdom isn't an idea or a set of beliefs. The kingdom is a basileia, a kingdom, because there is a king. And you cannot have his rule and reign and its benefits and its blessings without having the king of the kingdom. So if you want the kingdom, follow me, trust me, believe in me. Now, the reading we've just had is an important parallel passage. It's like a different passage because there Jesus was walking and he goes up to people and he takes the initiative and he calls them. And there's just these few people and then there's all these confusing empty nets. As people have literally left everything to follow Jesus. But now the crowds are coming and they're leaving almost nothing. You know, they've still got their homes, they've still got their lives as they know it, but they like this Jesus, they like his ideas, and so they're being attracted to the healing, to the kindness, to the compassion, to the provision, to the freedom that they're finding in this Jesus. But he's going, the criteria hasn't changed. To follow me, these guys, this group around me, they, they left everything. And they're following me no matter what it costs. I'm not turning you away. Jesus is not discouraging discipleship. He'd never do that. He's defining it. There's a big difference. He's not trying to drive people away. He just wants people to come knowing what this actually looks like. And so in this almost like parallel passage, Jesus defines discipleship as following him for the kingdom. That as we do, there's this promise. He will make, he'll take us and make something wonderful of our lives. We become his apprentices. Now, remember, Peter and James and John and Andrew, and they were apprentices learning how to fish with their fathers. They were going to go into the family business. Jesus says, no, you're no longer doing that. You're doing this. You're now my apprentices, and we're about my father's business. We're going to learn from my father how to do kingdom. And Jesus will make something that carries influence. And so that's what we looked at last week. How the yeast gets worked in and it's, it's hard work and it's sweat and toil into this enormous batch of dough that Cindy uh, modeled for us with uh, her 500 grams. Thank you, my love. So what do we discover today? And, and just very simply, we're going to look at these these three pictures that, and metaphors that, that are around this parallel passage. We're back at the point. People are saying, Jesus, I'll follow you. But they haven't understood what the first disciples understood. So Jesus is going to give them three pictures. The first is that the kingdom comes as an invitation. It is an invitation. Follow me. The kingdom comes as an opportunity. The kingdom comes as an invitation to a wonderful banquet is the story. We haven't got time to go through the whole thing. But 
Just think of it. Jesus believes he's inviting us to a banquet, to a feast, to something abundant, magnificent, pleasant, and satisfying. We've been invited to become God's heirs and God's children. We're invited to open up our lives, as it were, and receive his love and receive his spirit. We've been called, invited to receive his forgiveness and grace. To be reconciled to him. We're being invited to be part of bringing his goodness and grace on the earth. It's an amazing feast. It's a banquet. You'd never taste all the dishes in this banquet. I was just thinking about this. Some of the most wonderful experiences in our lives have not been because we tried for them or we earned them, but because... We accepted an invitation. And some years ago, friends of ours who were living in Kenya invited us to go to the Mara game reserve with them. And uh, we wondered if it was a good idea when we were there and we had this tiny little bit of nylon tent between us and a leopard or an elephant and you heard the, you know, I mean the animals literally breathing outside. You could hear the leopard breathing. We never saw him, but we heard him. And you stayed very close, and you didn't go far from your tent for anything. And yet, what amazing experience, because we accepted an invitation. We didn't earn it. We were invited. Cindy mentioned earlier, later this week on Wednesday, we traveled to London to accept a wedding invitation. Two lovely PBC interns, Lizzie Hughes and Noah Jones, who met you at PBC, now getting married on my birthday, purely coincidental. Now, in theory, we could have concluded that the invitation costs too much. And there is a sense in which accepting any invitation, and no matter how amazing, is going to cost you your time. The things you had intended to do, the life you had intended to live, the things you were going to fill your day with or your week with or whatever it was, that has to be set aside. And, and there may be other costs involved. And so we might have concluded this invitation costs too much. So Jesus is going to pick up on that idea. Yes, it's an invitation. But you do need to count the cost. You see, sadly, in the parable, as he tells it, his invitation, amazing as it is, is often rejected, dismissed, excused in a hundred different ways. And yet he refuses to let people's casual rejection of his invitation dictate whether he will accomplish his purposes. He says, my house will be full. My house will be full. He's going to keep going. He's going to keep celebrating. He's going to keep receiving people. He's going to go after the most unlikely people, not the people who we would think would get the invitation. He's going to go after the cripple and the lame and the blind, and he's going to go after people who need it most, who never thought they could go to the king's banquet, and he's going to fill his house. And so the challenge is, Will you accept his invitation? He's not going to miss out. 
But you might. You might not taste the banquet. The kingdom comes as invitation. Secondly, the kingdom requires careful cost consideration. So while this was hinted at in that parable, now it's like in your face. You need to build something. So at our AGM in March, PBC decided that we needed to seriously consider a building program at uh, the church campus. And so we set aside some money for the architects. There's several reasons for this. The kitchen was damaged by a burst geyser. Uh, the conversion of what used to be a single-purpose sanctuary with sloped floor and pews now into a really nice multi-purpose usable auditorium has just meant that the, like, the use of the campus has just gone into that space. And that room's used two, three times a day and it's constantly being turned over. And so we've got part of the campus that is now almost falling into disuse. However, at the elders' strategic kind of prayer retreat last year, we felt God reminding us of our call to multiply congregations, and in particular, reminding us that Conradi Park is here and 10,000 people are entering our world. And we don't think we should have mega congregations. We think we should multiply more and more. But where do we put them? Conradi Park are absolutely adamant we can't go there. Doing Alpha there, by the way, is a real breakthrough. Thank you, Lord. And so we're beginning to think, how, we've, we've got a hall and it's actually standing empty. But one of the things that we've got to do, so on Friday I was in town meeting with the church architects. And, um, and as we see this coming together of, as it were, disuse, not great stewardship right now of our resources and opportunity, we're starting to feel we, we, should, we should be building. We should be doing something with this. But one thing is clear. You can't build without counting the cost. You can't build without actually doing, you know, getting your quantity surveyor in and looking at what you need and working out can we afford to do this? You don't want to just dig your foundation, throw some cement in, and there it stands. You don't want to knock down some walls, and then you say, oh, we'll get there at some point. And there, the broken room then stands completely unusable. You need to count the cost. Now, it's interesting. Jesus says this man needed to build a tower. Now, for us, that sounds like a luxury. That sounds like, what guy wants to build a tower? I mean, what's the use... I mean, it's not like the Tower of Babel. What kind of towers were there in, you know, first century Palestine? Actually, towers were a really important structure in their agrarian society. So landowners would build towers at key points in the property, or the village would build towers at key points so that they could watch over their lands, over their vineyards, over their flocks. And so having a tower enabled you not only to have a place of strength and gathering uh, and, and refuge on your, on your land, but it also enabled you to watch over and keep safe and secure your stuff. So that's, the towers were not town towers. They were not apartment blocks. They were places for safety, security, and protection of 
the land around it. So that's why you would build a tower. Without a tower, everything you had would be insecure. So this is not a vanity. This is not a luxury. But you still needed to be sure that you could afford it. You see, Jesus is telling a story that everything I have may be insecure if I don't build the tower. But if I build the tower, I need to count the cost. Do you see the, see the logic? Don't start and then give up. Will, will I do this? Now remember, we're talking kingdom. Will I give whatever it takes to make Jesus my king? To make him my master, to make him my example, to follow him, to trust him, to rely on him. You see, entering this kingdom at very least means Jesus is your king. He says, seek first the kingdom. Everything else, everything else will be kept safe, secure. All these things will be added to you, Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom. He then gives you all the rest of your life. In other words, the metaphor, to pick up another image from Jesus, is he, he talks about the kingdom having a narrow door or a narrow gate. Now, it doesn't mean it's a small kingdom. It just means it's got a single entry point. The kingdom then spreads and covers everything. But the everything will only be available. The banquet, to change the metaphor, the landscape that is your inheritance will only be available if you'll use the entry point. And Jesus says the entry point is me. Be my disciple. Follow me. So if I'm going to do this, I can't ring fence a little compartment of my life and call it faith or call it church or call it Bible and then say, okay, there I've got it. I've got the kingdom and it's this little piece here and then there's my life for the rest of it. And so God, I'll come to you for this, but this is mine. When I come and I receive Jesus as king, literally all the terrain. I might even, we understand it, I might even have ownership and stewardship of something right in front of me. This is my space. But it's part of his kingdom. It ultimately belongs to him. That's how a kingdom works. Now, we're into democracies and all that kind of stuff, but that's how a kingdom works. You only have it because ultimately it's the king's and it's entrusted to you. This means that all my other loyalties, and so whether they're precious relationships like father, mother, brother, sister, even your own life, has to be viewed in the light of this allegiance. So we have an invitation, then we have this necessity of counting the cost, and then the last picture Jesus uses, it's like he's ramping this up. He says it's like a scary invasion. You know, the first is the banquet. Take it or leave it. It's your choice. You must miss out, but hey. And the building, hey, you could, you could take the risk. Do without it. So Jesus intensifies the imagery. 
This kingdom is not as optional as you think. It's invitational, yes, but it's, it's not something that's going to stay out there. And then he describes what it's like to be a king and yet be invaded by a much stronger king. You've got your army. You've got your resources. You have your kingdom. You rule your world is the, what the story is. You've got your space. But now a stronger king is coming. And either you're going to fight him or you're going to find out what his terms are. But if you fight him, you lose. Gosh, Jesus, really? Like, can't you just be an optional extra? You see the progression here. We've gone from an invitation to a confrontation. This kingdom isn't just a nice to have. Jesus is not going to let history come to an end and you've lived your life for yourself, for your kingdom, with your armies and with your territory and with your space and then go, okay, isn't this wonderful? He's, he's engaging you. In fact, he's threatening your kingdom. Jesus is a threat to my rule and my control, my way, my desires. Jesus is out now. He's confronting that. He's saying, you can't have that and me. You can't have your own kingdom, your own desires, your own purpose, live for whatever you like, and then still think, this is going to end well. And so he uses this picture of a confrontation, of a threat. Have you ever thought of Jesus as a threat? There's a lot of language that cautions us to be very careful about being presumptuous with God. A stronger king has invaded, and you won't win if you fight him. His victory is a foregone conclusion. So how are you going to come to terms with his demands? Is what he wanted those people on following him on that day. Will you accept me? Will you follow me? Or will you fight me? Will you accept my terms? And he has my terms. Verse 27, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Remember, he's not discouraging discipleship. He's defining it. He's helping people see what it's going to take. So as we look at these stories on the quest for Basileia, will I accept the king and his kingdom? There is no scenario in which at the end of all things, God does not ensure, hear me on this, from his prayer, that his will is going to happen on earth as it is in heaven.
There is no scenario in world history that God does not ensure that his will isn't going to be fully done on the earth as it is in heaven. He's going to win. You see, we're lucky. We can read the book of Revelation and see how it ends. And he wins. The question is, are you going to fight or are you going to accept his terms? His terms include a cross. At the heart of his kingdom is a cross. Why? Because at the heart of my kingdom, Craig's kingdom, is selfishness and sin. When I get my way, people suffer. When he gets his way, people thrive. When I get my way and I have control, people are wounded. When he gets his way and his kingdom comes, people are healed and set free. I have to choose my kingdom or his, my control or his sovereign purpose. At the heart of my kingdom, is living for me. And so he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Accepting the cross of Jesus is accepting the kingdom on his terms. I deny myself. I lay down my kingdom. I send all my soldiers so that he no longer has an army double my size but triple. I align everything that I have with him. I don't want to rule the world. But why a cross? Why this brutal Roman crucifixion? You know, Peter, this first mentioned disciple of the abandoned fishing nets fame from the Galilean beach, Peter would write towards the end of his life. And he didn't understand this on the beach. He probably didn't even understand it when Jesus said it to this large crowd, you know, that we've got recorded in Luke 14. But he understood it after Easter. He understood it after Good Friday. He understood it after resurrection and Pentecost. He understood it. And so he writes this about the cross. Why the cross? Remember I said the problem with my kingdom is selfishness and sin. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 22, uh, 24. He himself, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross. So that we might die to sins, our kingdom, and live for righteousness, his kingdom. That's what the cross accomplishes. In his body, he broke the power of sin to control me, direct me, judge me, and condemn me. And he opens up a life that has the possibility of being whole, because he then says, we die to sins, live for righteousness, for by his wounds, we are healed. We are made whole. This is where healing comes. This is where freedom comes. Because of what he did on the cross. Because he wasn't selfish. Because he paid for sin. For we, Isaiah 53, were like sheep going astray. By the way, that's the next parable. <laughs> Keep reading. We were like sheep. 
But now you've come home to the overseer, to the shepherd of your soul. That's why the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus made this all possible. Peter understood it after the events. He understood why the cross has to be the center of the kingdom. For on the cross, Jesus denied himself. On the cross, he obeyed his Father. On the cross, he atoned for sin. On the cross, he makes our forgiveness and new life possible. On the, because of the cross, I can come home to God. Because of the cross, I can be healed and whole. And because of the cross, I can say no to my kingdom. And I can let him invade I can let him come. 